Hello, good evening, and welcome to the Comics Experience Graphic Novel of the Month Club. Uh, this is our uh, selection for March uh, for the adult new book, um, and we've got a really great piece of science fiction for you tonight. A um, little bit of social commentary as well. Uh, the book is Eve, uh, and um, uh, we are very uh, honored to have Victor Laval, the author, here with us. Hello, sir. How are you? Oh, you're still muted. Hold on, half a second. <laughs> we'll un there you go. Now you, now, now you should be able to talk. <laughs> I'm doing well, and I'm real happy to be here. I, and yeah. I appreciate Eve for the for the month. Yeah, we we liked it a lot. I mean, we we thought it was a very swell book, and uh, uh, it, you know, it's it's always it's always nice to have a book like this that uh, you know, particularly with a character of color, and you know, that's 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 thoughtful, and that it's moving things forward. I, I just, we really, we really liked the book a lot. Um, thank you. Thank you. I was, all those reasons, uh, all those things you're saying about it were uh, exactly the kind of energy uh, that I wanted to bring to the story. Just for a, a, a girl like Eve to be the one who has, who gets to save the world, perhaps. Yeah. Uh, um, and, and, you know, who is the center of the story uh, and who, at, and is at heart uh, like an innocent, you know, uh, that, really on a certain level, her superpower is just kind of her hopefulness. Yeah. Uh, that all of that was kind of what I wanted to sort of put into the book. So I'm happy that it uh, came through. Yeah, no, it very, it very much did. Um, so I, I, always, I always ask the first question, uh, the same first question to everybody who's a, who's a guest here. I, I really like it. Your, your answer is probably going to be a little different than most people just because of, because of your history and your past. But the first question is this, is, is why comics? Um, you know, you, you can tell stories in any number of ways. And in fact, you're a novelist primarily. You've written seven yes. novels, um, many of which have been, you know, uh, uh, won awards, the major awards. Um, uh, and so, so why comics? Comics was my first love. Comics was how I learned to read and how I learned to love stories. Um, for me, like the first, I guess, independent reading experience was, uh, so I grew up in Queens, uh, New York. Uh, around our way, we had a corner store called the Gina Rose Candy Shop. It was owned by two sisters, Gina and Rose. That's where they got the name. And they had a spinner rack, old school spinner rack in there. And part of why they were so beloved in the neighborhood. You come in at the end of school, whatever, maybe you spend a quarter on a quarter water, you buy some chips. And then if you did that, they really didn't care if you just stood there with your buddies and read comics for nothing. Oh, nice. Uh, it was really, and you know, I think for them, it was just a sense of like a little bit of a community space. Um, the comics weren't that expensive. I don't, I don't ever remember buying one, but I do remember reading all of them. You know, um, and Gina and Rose were like true, like saints of the block, uh -huh. uh, uh, because for a bunch of the friends growing up, uh, that was our first chance to like decide what we wanted to read. Yeah. Um, so that's why comic, because I love them. Dearly. Yeah. Oh, that's great. That's great. I, I grew up in Brooklyn, and okay. uh, and my first comics were also from the bodega. Nice. Uh, though, though they made us buy them. They they, they, did. just, they didn't just let us read them. Uh, they were quite grumpy about if you didn't if you didn't give them you know the, the seventy five cents or whatever it was. Yeah. 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 Well, you know, I mean, I guess uh, it only that only makes me understand even more how special Gina and Rose were. Yeah. You know. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> 
Absolutely. Um, what what is uh, what's the first comics you remember reading? Because obviously, you know, you I'm sure you've read many. Uh, but what was the ones that stuck with you? Well, I remember. So I don't know if this necessarily has to do with anything, but for a, a, a short period of time, for about a year, I lived with a um, with my an auntie. Uh, with my uh, my grandmother's sister in Trinidad, and for whatever reason, the Tintin comics were really popular in Trinidad, mm -hmm. um, and so those were some just pouring over those books, and mm -hmm. and the Asterix comics too, for whatever reason, were super popular there. But Tintin in particular, they were so beautiful, so meticulously yeah. drawn. Uh, yeah. Even when I didn't understand the stories, I loved just looking at those images and seeing PD jumping around and all the look, just beautiful, you know. Yeah. Um, and uh, and so Tintin, and then the other thing was X Men is probably mm. and Spider Man maybe because Spider Man is a Queens kid, right? Had a, you know, a, a deep love for Spider Man as a result. Um, and then the X Men were, I guess, I mean, it's, by now it's a cliche to talk about the X Men as you know the outsider um, speaking to the uh, sort of the cast outs and all the rest. But I did love them dearly for that too. Yeah. Yeah. Was this the uh, this was the uh, the 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 new X Men the uh, the the international X Men not not yes, the original this, five Yeah, that's right. This would be uh, God loves man kills era. Oh wow. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Would be I would say when I was I'm sure I read a few here and there on the spinner rack, but when I was when I actually could identify characters and follow storylines and really care about them, the first one I remember. I mean, I think a lot of people from that era. That's what they're going to remember. Sure, God loves man kills. Sure, sure. Yeah, no, that was that was a very deep story. Yeah, for um, sure. But th that was part of the the profound aspect. So, like Tintin, uh, beautifully drawn. I don't know that they are the most profound comics in the world. They're just fun adventures, right? Mm -hmm. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's wonderful. Absolutely. Um, and then Spider Man Two, I would say, especially that era, uh, not always the deepest. Yeah. They're just great adventures. Except for maybe something like Craven's Last Hunt or something like yeah. that, the occasional standout. Yeah. But X Men, like at least God Loves Men Kills, and then sort of from there forward, I feel like Claremont was really taking on some heavy stuff, Mutant Massacre, and all yeah. this. Kind of, you know, it was like not lighthearted business. Yeah. Um, and I appreciated learning that comics could do that too. You yeah. Know, before moving on to whoever else, you know, whatever um, uh, comics that might be. Uh, uh, like eight ball things like that. That would like later on, where I was like, "Oh, this can really do a lot of stuff." Right, right. But as a kid, you know, 10, 11, 12, that still felt like a sort of a step up for me in my thinking yeah. and my maturity. Yeah, no, and I and I feel like I feel like X Men at that time too was very, uh, you know, very transgressive and very, mm -hmm. um, you know, just dealing with things that you didn't you didn't see those kinds of themes uh developed anywhere else you know no, um, like not even not even glancingly tackled yeah you know um and you know i don't want i wouldn't want everything i want some things to just be here's the cosmic cube and let's right battle against eternity for it i want that too yeah but i don't only want that yeah 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 um uh when did you know you wanted to be a writer um, I would say relatively young, um, probably. So I would say I grew up in a, a somewhat chaotic household. 
And um, uh, what I learned was uh, that, um, you know, if you hold up a book in front of you, people will kind of leave you alone. Right, right. You know, you become invisible on a certain level. And so I became a reader uh, in part to sort of disappear. Yeah. And go into another, you know, go some, go away from this household. Yeah. Um, and then I, and I gravitated more toward horror. So I was reading people like Lovecraft, Stephen King, Clive Barker, Shirley Jackson, um, as I got older. Um, and, but as I read them, particularly Stephen King, I would say, cause he was so good at finding that middle ground between like uh, stories about adults and like hard things, but still finding a way to have a tone that could make a kid, a 10, 12 year old kid feel like he understood things. The language is clear and direct. It's not simplistic, but it is clear and direct. Sure. Um, and so I began writing by copying Stephen King stories. You know, nice. uh, I think an, an age old way of beginning to write. Yeah. Um, and at that stage, I don't know that I thought I wanted to be a writer, but I did know I enjoyed writing, you know. Um, and then, And then I didn't really find anything else I enjoyed anywhere near as much yeah you know what what was the reaction uh to your early stories uh, from the adults in in your life well I, I was lucky in a way because my 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 mother my grandmother couldn't give a damn at all about it and in a way that was kind of freeing uh -huh. so like they my mom was a secretary she's working real hard my grandmother was taking care of me and my sister she, they didn't have there was never a day when i said like hey would you read my story about roaches that eat a man you know like it's just never a time where i did that um and i never would have thought they would care about yeah. it and that was actually kind of sort of like with the book it was kind of freeing yeah yeah to not worry about that um yeah. and so it was really not until maybe high school that i started to share sometimes like in, in a create if there was a creative writing part of a class or something like that. And the teachers, my teachers, almost to a person would always say like, um, this is gruesome, but it's fun. Yeah. Uh, you should keep going. And uh, and I, I think um, for me, rather than necessarily feeling like any particular encouragement, the gift was I just never got any discouragement. Mm, mm, you know? mm -hmm. And so I never, like nobody told me it was stupid to do this. Nobody said yeah. like, why don't you try to write something more serious? Right. Um, and, and in that way, I just got to play in every direction I wanted to play. Yeah. And it wasn't until maybe college that, I would say college, freshman or sophomore year, my first writing workshop where somebody, a fellow student, not even the professor, basically wrote on my, at the end of my story, just one like word. And it just was, ooh, <laughs> and just shamed me like mm -hmm. so powerfully. Um, and it was the beginning of me thinking like, oh, I should be more serious about this. I shouldn't be writing monster stories and horror stories. Yeah. It's serious. And then to my great sadness, I kind of put away the stuff I really wanted to write. And I thought like, oh no, I have to write like realistic stories about uh, sad things. Cause that's right. literature. Yeah. You know? and it took a long time for me to shake that off actually. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, now you're a, you're, your day job, you're a, you're a professor yourself and, and you teach writing. Yes. 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 Yeah. Um, so I didn't like, Ooh, at the end of any of my students' stories. <laughs> um, broadly, how would, how do you see, um, how do you see genre 
fiction as a professor? Well, I would say I welcome it thoroughly. Yeah. And as a result, um, I find this the students who are who are working in that sort of realm will definitely gravitate to my class because they know it's kind of a safe space for it. Sure. But I but it's not a guaranteed it's not a guarantee, you know, like there are lots of writers, professors who are say who write literary realism, and it's not that they don't want to I wouldn't say that it's that they dismiss genres of various kinds, but that they they're, you know, it's like anything, they're not well read in it, so they don't know how to help people get better at it. Mm, mm. Right. I, they might not even say it that way, but that's the way I would say it, uh, yeah. probably to be generous. Yeah. Um, but here or there. So, I mean, this is not an advertisement. I don't work at Sarah Lawrence, but like I've been kind of happy. Sarah Lawrence College uh, in New York has a um, now has an MFA with a concentration in speculative fiction. Yeah. And I love it being sort of clearly stated like that. So that people writing sci-fi, horror, fantasy yeah. can know, like, this is a door that is, it's not that you can kick it open. It's, it's open for you. Yeah. You know, but I don't, but I think that that's relatively rare, especially if you're talking at like the MFA level. Yeah. Um, and I know, you know, um, talking to, 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 to students, it can be a little bit of a work to sometimes say like, um, uh, there, this might also not be the best place for you to 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 grow, you know, like um, there's Clarion, the Clarion writing workshops. There's um, any number of places. This, I think the uh, Bram's, the uh, Horror Writers Association does like horror writing workshops right. and that there are other places and other ways to um, to sort of find community and to be treated with, you know, the dignity that any writer should have. Yeah. Um, that said, I do think uh, any situation, it's possible to say, I'm going to get something out of this, no matter, regardless of whether or not the other person is willing to give me something. Right. Um, and so that was my experience when I did my MFA, um, was that I said to myself, every class, no matter what, I got to get something out of this. Yeah. And that wasn't like magic. It was because I had failed out of my undergrad and done really badly. Um, and so my feeling was like, if I don't make this work, I'm just never going to make anything work. Right, uh, right. And so my energy in the class, even the classes where people were, professors were dismissive of what I was doing, I was sort of like, okay, but they did teach me how to do an opening sentence, yeah. a good opening sentence. I never wrote one according to them, but I still learned what one might be. <laughs> you know? um, and that's, and I'm going to take that. I'm going to take yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, because it, you know, I mean, it, it seems to me that in academia, it is, it's only really recently that non-literary work is, is considered acceptable. Yes, I would, I would say that's right. And I, I would, and I think it's, you know, uh, academia always sort of trails the, the, mod, the, the, whatever is the modern culture, because sure. they have to study the thing before they can decide if it's worth it. Right. Right. But as more and more people you have, I mean, Colson Whitehead has won a Pulitzer Prize for a, essentially a speculative novel. Um, you have uh, all these various writers doing these kind of amazing, um, what would in any other earlier decade clearly be called a science fiction novel, a fantasy novel, a horror novel. 
but now these things are blended so that something could win uh, the National Book Award and the World Fantasy Award, potentially. Mm -hmm. uh, and now people wouldn't bat an eye in the way they would 10, 20 years ago. Yeah, you know? yeah. So I feel like that's a, a kind of progress, at least sure. my eye, certainly. Yeah, my uh, you know my my primary knowledge is on the comic side of the world, yeah. uh, and certainly you know it's really the last decade that there are you know there are college there are college level comics classes you know yes. I mean there have there there have been for longer than that but it was always a kind of a fringe thing and now mm -hmm. there's literally school programs that that's what they do uh, you know and it, it, it's fascinating to me how how it, how that changes the work and it changes the world as well that's right and the and the conversation about it. my buddy is uh teaches at the university of oregon and they've got a spe like specifically like a comic studies mm -hmm. uh like a line or or like program mm -hmm. and uh when he was getting the job part of the reason he got the job was because he he writes fiction and he does graphic novels mm -hmm. um and uh and they wanted somebody who could teach students in both worlds yeah you know um and so yeah i, I agree like I, I feel like um i'm sure there are some people who would say like comics should stay out of academia right. because academia poisons everything and i can't say i disagree entirely uh, yeah. but i do like the idea of being able to work with people who have you know that kind of long history to be able to say this thing you love it's actually in this tradition of things yeah. And let's talk about how or why these things build on each other. Yeah, yeah. You know, so that the next person, so that that person can make the next thing in that chain. Sure. Sure. So I'll, I'll admit that I'm uh, relatively ignorant about your novels other than what I've read on Wikipedia. <laughs> I apologize. Um, but uh, uh, if, if I was reading it correctly, it seems like all of your novels are genre work. Is that, is that right? The last, the last five have been. The first two books were uh, pure, like pure literary realism. Mm -hmm. uh, the first one was a book of stories about um, me growing up, about growing up in Queens with mm -hmm. uh, kind of boys who didn't have any, who weren't sort of supervised. Um, and then the second novel was about a person very much based on me and my family who kind of comes home from college because he's failed out and he's not doing very well and everything breaks down uh, between him and his family. And essentially when I was writing those things, um, I had essentially ended all my life story unless I was gonna next write a novel about a guy who goes to an MFA program. Uh, and I really did not want to write that book. Right, right. Uh, you know, and so it was a, a, a real, um, like fork in the road moment where I realized I could go down this path of continuing to do this literary realism, but in truth, like it wasn't making me very happy and I was getting pretty bored with myself. Yeah. Yeah. And then I said, there's this other path and this other path to go down that path. I think I need to start writing about monsters because yeah. that's what I loved so much when I was young. Yeah. Uh, and then that turned out to be the best path because the books I think got better. Yeah. I think they got more interesting, like not so much about me e exclusively. Um, yeah. And if I could say like um, the thing that was such a gift was uh, my editor who I've been with through all except my very first book. He said like, if you leave behind whatever readership you've gained with the first two, 
you don't know that there'll be anyone who wants to read these others. Right. Um, so why give up even just the nominal readership mm. that you have? Uh, and I said, I got to do it anyway. And to my great pleasure and to his great relief, it turned out there were a lot more people who wanted to read the more fantastical speculative stuff that I was writing than wanted to read more about me being miserable. Do you, do you think now in hindsight that you did have some of your audience move from one to the other or, or did you have to rebuild from scratch? Uh, I would say a good bit of that audience came over. I would say that other truth is it wasn't that big an audience. Yeah. You know what I mean? So it wasn't that yeah. many people to shift. Yeah. Sure, all of sure, it. sure. Um, and maybe in a way, what also was like a, what happened was the books were also uh, like a slow progression into the speculative. So mm. even those folks who were here on the realist side, it wasn't like they immediately had to buy into horned monsters that are possessing children or something like that. Right. You know, it began with a, a stuff that was a little closer, like realist for a while, and then it becomes wild. Mm -hmm. And I think in a way, a lot of them kind of say, well, I still enjoy the writing and I still like the characters. So I'll stick around. And then really the bigger shift was there was many more people who, who were like, well, now this sounds interesting, you know, mm -hmm. as opposed to maybe the other stuff. Mm -hmm. It was mm -hmm. interesting to me, but you know, yeah, because unfortunately, one of the I don't know, I don't know if it's if it's a sad secret or if it's not a secret at all. But like most books, don't sell. You know, they do not sell. <laughs> they, they just don't. I mean, it doesn't really matter what it is. Most don't. And you know, I, it it strikes me that unless you get really lucky to get sort of recognized by specific literary magazines or people that it's really difficult it's more difficult probably to 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 have a career as doing literary realism is is would, would you agree with that or, or am i off base on that no i don't think you're wrong i think that the 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 path or whatever for like more for like literary realism is like let's say uh just getting a book published across the board whether you're talking about prose, comics, poetry, it's all—it's already a miracle to get the work out and, yeah. and done, right? Um, but let's say in literary realism, you get the books published. The path is often from there is to sort of say like, well, maybe now I can get some teaching, right? Mm. Uh, and so in a way, sort of the path can, on literary realism can be uh, one that relies on um, not necessarily like I have to sell a ton of books, but I sell enough books that I can convince university that I have something to teach students. Mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, I, and then they, you enter into that path, mm -hmm. right? That, you know, the, the, and the relationship is mutually beneficial because by and large, as we were just saying, the university system still largely credits literary realism as the serious genre. Right. right? So it's, it's also like we're hiring you because we respect the type of, writing you do and because we think that's the type of writing our students should do right 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 and that's the kind of thing our academic side is interested in studying yeah so there's a way that it becomes an ecosystem that sort of feeds each other yeah as opposed to i'm thinking about like the um i don't know like dashiell hammett or poe or walter mosley or something like that where it's just like you better publish another book 
publish another book publish, and just hope you can publish enough in your year to make rent. Yeah. Yeah. Or publish enough that eventually maybe one of your books actually connects with readers. Sure. So you can actually like cover your rent for six months. Yeah. You know, um, that, um, that that's another path. Um, but so, yeah, I think literary realism probably, um, if you were to look at the sales of things, you know, the vast majority of every genre doesn't sell. Absolutely. Right? Um, but most of the other genres can't say, well, I didn't sell that much, but I got a job that gives me uh, health insurance. Right. And right. summer's off. You know, that's right. pretty right. much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Stuff. Um, yeah. And, uh, and so that's, I think that is potentially sometimes also the lure. Yeah. The, 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 the advantage to me that genre has, and I'm not so, I'm not positive how strong of an advantage it, it is. Mm -hmm. But the advantage that I see is that genre has, um, I think, more stores uh, that are dedicated to that. You know, there's a whole swath of horror, uh, you know, bookstores that specialize in horror or yes. specialize in science fiction. Um, there's more, I think, uh, magazines that are not highfalutin, you know, that are writing about genre work. Um, and exposing people to that genre work than maybe there are uh, with literary stuff. Again, you know, this is me from the outside because you know I'm, I own comic books. That's that's right. what I do. Um, but does that does that seem right to you? I, I feel like that sounds right, and that feels almost like the mirror to the academia path, yeah. right? Like it's like there's that that would be the um, the other ecosystem yeah. that supports its writers. Yeah. Right? And does a great job uh, of, you know, like the, I mean, the equivalent of the hand sell, you yeah. got to read this. And, yeah. the, and the idea that a person keeps coming back to that store because they trust yeah. the people at that store. Exactly. And those people at that store get to know them. And when they say, you got to read this, they believe it. Yeah. And they pick that thing up, right? And yeah. then they're introduced to someone great. Yeah. Um, and as, and then, you, as you learn who the customers are and what they like, you start recognizing what not to recommend to them, you know? <laughs> exactly. Like, oh, you're you're not gonna like this one, right. you know. Um, but this is this is in your in your field, you know. So yeah, no, it's it's an interesting uh, interesting thing. So um, uh, so you got on that uh, on that academic path. Um, it 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 strikes me that as being a teacher is a lot of work. Uh, it's a lot of work, yeah. You know, it, 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 and especially if you're teaching something like writing where you're, where you have to read everything that your students are giving to you, which again, consumes a lot more time, I think, I think than, than just like a paper on archaeology or something. Right. Well, I mean, I think, I mean, I, I would hope that all the, all the papers, whether creative or academic, mm. take time and need to be read. Right. Um, what I would say is I think the teaching is a heavy job, but at least generally speaking, it's still not a 40 hour a week job. Yeah. Right. So it's still like, it's hard work, but there's harder work. Right. For sure. Out in the well, world. And, yeah. uh, you know, so, so the great thing is, and you know, so that means like you're teaching a few classes a week, you're doing academic, uh, uh, administrative work as part of the job. Mm -hmm. You're, um, you're mentoring students, 
uh, all those kinds of things are going on. So you're filling up a week, certainly. I mean, mm -hmm. it's a full-time job, mm -hmm. um, but there is still might be like one day a week where you can carve out is a writing day. Right. That's that was see, that was that was where I was going with this. Yeah. Is is how how do you write novels at the same time that you are juggling this other career? Right. And so in my I would say in my case, like I I uh, so my wife and I have two children, two sons, um, and uh, I became more productive once she gave birth to our sons, uh -huh. um, which is not the usual no. way. But um, when I say more productive, all I mean is like before our kids I had no routine mm. um, but once the kids came I had to have a routine interesting uh, because the kids didn't care about like oh I'm I'm inspired right now yeah. I need whatever so um, what I started to learn was to find I used to be able to find it would be two hours a day right like morning evening whatever it is and all I have is that two hours and I'm just gonna work in those two hours Nowadays, it's probably an hour because uh, the kids are a little older. I have some other commitments outside of family and the teaching. Right. Um, so even an hour, uh, though, but the routine has become such that in one, doing one hour a day, three to five days a week, I'll produce a novel in a year. Yeah. Uh, whereas in the past, I used to believe, like before the kids, I used to think I need 42 straight hours in order to write this one chapter because yeah. i need to immerse myself and now i'm just like you got an hour yeah you gotta write that chapter you gotta yeah. begin that chapter this hour because in another yeah. hour you're gonna pass out because you're exhausted yeah um, and that has been like the greatest gift uh even as it hasn't always felt like a gift um for my productivity uh, yeah so whatever is coming you know sometimes week to week some weeks are more heavy you're not, I don't get any work done. Um, but generally speaking, it's like an hour. I can find an hour. I can find an hour. I can find an hour. Yeah. And I look up and I go, oh, I finished uh, issue three of Eve. Okay. Uh, or, oh, I finished the chapter of the next book. Okay. And I just know to myself, don't worry about it. Tonight, but look, you're going to lift your head in a year. You're going to see how much you got done. Yeah. And that's been my method for the last, our oldest son is 11. So for the last 11 years, uh, and I produced so much more in that 11 years than I did in the previous 11. Nice. Yeah. Nice. I like that. Are you a, uh, are you a morning writer, an evening writer? Uh, usually it's actually more like midday. Cause okay. so for me, it's like a, I have like a morning class and then I have administrative stuff in the afternoon and then we pick up the kids and then it's dinner with the kids. And then it's like that. So right in this sweet spot of maybe 11 to 12, like the lunch hour, so to speak. Um, Interesting, yeah. Would be, the, is the time when I, like I've trained myself at this point now, like just sit down, work wherever I am. I have the computer maybe, or I'm writing by hand, whatever it is. Yeah. Uh, and that one hour, I'm snacking on something while I'm working. Uh -huh. uh, and then I look up and I say, like, but you did your hour. So the rest of the day, I don't feel resentful of the rest of my responsibilities. Um, and I can look back, even you know, more than half the time, the thing I wrote for that hour is garbage. Right. Like it's it's I can even as I'm reading, I say, oh, this is crap. Yeah. But I had to get that crap out. Yeah. To get to the good thing. Sure, sure. You know? uh, and so that's my sort of mindset. So midday yeah. is my best uh, time. Yeah. Neat.
That's that's interesting. Yeah. Uh, uh, so so let's let's get to comics in this. Um, yes. Uh, how did you make the jump to to your first comic was Destroyer? Um, uh, and and so where did where did that come from? Did you pitch that, uh, or did they come to you and and go? Uh, we read your novels. We think they're really great. We'd like you to write something. Definitely, that did not happen. Okay. <laughs> Definitely not. Um, what actually happened was it's a little more roundabout. Um, so there's a, a great uh, classic horror writer, or continuing to be great horror writer, Clive Barker. Um, sure. I wrote a piece for um, uh, the radio for NPR. They were doing a thing like name the first book that scared you. It was like a Halloween thing you know, probably now 15 years ago, yeah. 10, 15 years ago. And I wrote up a thing on Clive Barker's Books of Blood. Um, and then in some roundabout way or another, he heard it because it was playing on NPR. Um, and so as a roundabout way to say, so he has the uh, Hellraiser comic, the Hellraiser universe. Mm -hmm. um, and he was publishing through Boom Studios an anthology of Hellraiser comics. Mm -hmm. He'd heard me say this thing about uh, these flattering things about the book. Maybe he looked me up. He saw that I'd written some books. He told the editors at Boom, why don't you reach out to that guy? See if he has anything. Mm -hmm. um, he's not a comic guy, so maybe he'll come from a different angle kind of thing. Um, so uh, they reached out. I pitched them a story that was not about Pinhead, which was already, uh, I felt like, already 90% different from everybody else. And I knew, right. like I said, everybody's pitching Pinhead. Yeah. Do something else. So yeah. I pitched different kind of demon sort of story. Yeah. And they said, we don't have one of those. Sounds good. Uh -huh. And so I pitched them a 12 page thing. They said, okay, let's do it. I wrote the script and all that stuff. And then just before they were gonna start illustrating it, they called me up and they said, okay, look, you got five pages. Wow. Like, okay. Um, all right, I'll figure it out. And I morphed it together. I'm not claiming it's great, yeah. but I got it done. And so I turned it in and they said, hey, look, uh, it was good working with you. And we also appreciated seeing that you could adjust to reality. Um, if you ever have an idea, reach out to us. Oh, nice. And I said, okay. And then it was probably a year or so before I came up with the pitch for Destroyer. I wrote it out, sent it to them. They liked it. We started talking. And that was the beginning of that process. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, so that was the, the kind of roundabout way to get there. And it was, and then I think what was good, I mean, it was a positive experience and it was uh, pretty positively received, uh, mm -hmm. the comic itself. Mm -hmm. um, and so then they, and so then that's when they said, like, uh, um, if you ever have another one, uh, let us know, and then that was when I pitched them Eve. Yeah, uh, and then and so then that's how we got here. Was was there a struggle when you were writing that first Hellraiser script, uh, in in learning the difference in the language between prose and comics? Because structurally, they're they're very different things. Very different. Yes. Yeah. Well, I will say so. Um, in twenty ten. So this must have, so the, the whole Hellraiser thing 
anthology must have happened after 2010 because in 2010 I got this fellowship um, to move to Amsterdam for five months and learn how to um, learn screenwriting essentially. Nice. Um, uh, my wife and I went there. That's where we. Uh, that's where we could. Our our old first son was conceived, and this. But this this school that was there called the Binger Film Lab. It's basically five days a week, nine to five, and you're not only you're learning screenwriting, but you're also learning essentially directing. You're learning like how to make pitches, how to do log lines, all this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And it, for me, as a prose writer, we had and there was also a Dutch writer who was a part of it. For the two of us, it was a crash course in the difference between prose and visual storytelling. Mm-hmm. And um, because they, we would come in with these scripts where like, it says like interior barn night, and then like a two page description of like the interior of the barn and the smell and the mood. And then two characters would say, nice to see you. Yeah, good to see you too. End of scene. Right? <laughs> <laughs> they just tore us to pieces. Yeah. Um, and you're basically like, you're not doing visual storytelling. Yeah. You have to learn that. And so it was like really difficult and grueling to make the shift. But what one of the many benefits of that time was when it came time to write the comic, I had been put through the ringer of visual storytelling, which again, and and screenwriting is not the same as comic writing, certainly, but they're closer, Yeah. right? I had at least had it pounded out of my brain that you need to be writing prose. Yeah. And that everything is interior. Instead, it was all about like, how can you make the interior exterior? Mm-hmm. You know, how can you make a, a, a feeling into something someone can understand from the, seeing it you know um and so i still think like when i look even at the i look at the hellraiser thing i look at destroyer and i look at eve i can even look at it and i can see me learning even more the comic vocabulary mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. But i think if i had not gone through that experience in amsterdam they would not have my script for the hellraiser thing would not have been uh salvageable yeah then I would have never been able to do Destroyer or Eve. Yeah. So. Yeah. So I, I, it, I'd love for you maybe to talk a little bit about sort of the difference in structure between prose and comics. Because in, in comics, the unit is the page. Mm-hmm. And you have to think about things in terms of pages. Yeah. This is different than in screenwriting, because True. in screenwriting, there, there is no page. It's always just forward motion, forward motion. Mm-hmm. Um, but in prose, you don't you don't write to a to a page count or a right. like this has got to be twenty two pages. It you know like, right. Yeah, no, it's a it's a real. Uh, it's I mean it, they're just such different uh, languages, you know. And so like I will say like um, the not so much the Hellraiser because it was only five pages. So there was only so much, even the issue of like, is it page one? Then the next reveal should be page uh, two. I mean, two, is it going to be four? Is it six? You know, how are you going to break those things down? Right. Um, It wasn't until we were doing Destroyer together that the editors uh, gave me a real, we were, we really like dug into it, particularly like the first, probably at least the first two issues. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, where, you know, I would, I gave in the script and it looked 
much more like a screenplay script mm -hmm. in the sense of like, like you say, it's a continuous moment. And then they would, and then they sat me down, you know, on the phone or whatever. And we were like, okay, look right now, the problem is you just keep the reveal keeps showing up like on the wrong page. Right. Like, page three has the reveal, but they've turned it and they're looking at, they already see it because they're, they're on page two right. and then talking me through like, you're doing good visual storytelling, right? Like uh, the characters are doing interesting things. They're moving in interesting ways, but now you have to add in the next step of, but I need them to do that interesting thing on the turn. Right. Exactly. You know? Which is such another, it's such a specific yeah. way to tell the yeah. story. And yeah. then you would get into things like, but now, but you can't, if every page is a turn like that, it also, it starts to seem gimmicky. Yeah. Like, a, um, like, at, like it's just like movie posters as opposed to real storytelling. So you also have to figure out how to parse it out. Yeah. So that, uh, so that you, you give them something, then you lull them into thinking, oh, it's just stories, just story. And then you give them another thing. And, mm -hmm. you know, so, so the editors at Boom, uh, were <coughs> really instrumental in helping me move from visual storytelling to then comic book visual storytelling. Yeah. And, uh, and I think, I hope, you know, we did a, a good job with Destroyer and then with Eve, I think we did an even better job working, uh, a bunch of us working together to really get that down. And then I've also been writing, um, I'm writing a mini series for Marvel, um, uh, for a character called Sabretooth from the X-Men. Mm -hmm. And, <coughs> and there too, it's been, uh, all this knowledge has helped so that the conversations there have been less about like the turns and more about like, okay, you also have a data page and where's that data page going to land. So it has the greatest effect. Mm -hmm. And also we have, advert we have ads. So you need to think about the ads and where they'll right. be. Uh, right. And so that's its own sort of like education. And when you're, we're, when you're working on a Marvel comic, I mean, my, my understanding is, is they, you, they don't know where the ads are going to fall. They, you know, the nice thing is, at least for in the X office right now, they have a really, they do have a general idea. Like basically, like if you want to, like some of the folks who are much more um, savvy, who've been there longer, uh, Vida Ayala, Cy Spurrier, uh, Kieran Gillen, um, Jerry Duggan, those folks who've been doing a long time, Ben Percy. Um, Leah Williams, like it's just a ton of folks, Tinny Howard, they've all been doing it a long time. So they can, they can even play with, um, like you might find out, oh, the ad is actually going to be on this page and they can come in and be like, okay, here's the shift. Just do this. Right. To, to work. But uh, they do have a template. They're basically like, if you don't want to take any risks, we can almost guarantee you this will be the layout including ads and title pages and all the rest. As long as you're okay with it just being the conventional breaks. Yeah. And I have uh, certainly on this first mini, I've been like, give me every conventional break yeah. that you can. So I can just get this rhythm down Yeah. Uh, to, to start working on, including yeah. the advertising. Because the structure on working on a, a Marvel superhero is different than, than the structure of doing something like this, isn't it? Well, I can't, I mean, certainly number one, there's no history. To, nobody can tell me like in Eve, they, 
in an issue of Eve published in 1982, right. it was proven that Colossus is a vegetarian. Right. So you have right. ruined this miniseries by showing him eat chicken. Right. Right. And right. nobody can do that to me. And so there's yeah. a great deal less anxiety yeah. about that. Um, in fact, like I made a uh, I made a snafu in my second issue of Sabretooth um, that some readers were very, very willing to tell me that I had made. Uh, and it's so, you know, and it's luckily it was a small enough thing that I don't think it it didn't make any big issues for the story. Right. But it was that kind of thing where it's like uh, um, you are you are not the owner of this car. Yeah. You're borrowing this car. And I would even say, I mean, I know it's, of course, these are Marvel properties or DC properties, but I would suggest Marvel and DC aren't even the owners of these vehicles. The readers are the owners of those vehicles, and they love those vehicles dearly. Mm -hmm. Um, and so what I, so the feeling is to sort of say like, I want to get in this. I hope, I really think you'll have a blast with where I want to drive the car. Mm -hmm. at, a, at the end of all this, I'm going to leave the keys in the car. Yeah. I'm going to say, thanks very much for letting me drive it. I can't wait to see where the next driver takes it. Right. Like not mine. Yeah. And in a way there's kind of a, uh, a glory, the, the joy, there's some, Anxiety about that because you don't want to mess things up in a way that sort of destroys a character or something. But the joy of that is to sort of, is to say like, um, uh, I got to drive a car that Chris Claremont, yeah, uh, well built, right? <laughs> but I mean, I got to get in this driver's seat after him and after uh, Grant Morrison. Yeah. And all these people who even tangentially touched on some of these characters and yeah. made them and sprinkled them with their dust. Now I get to sprinkle mine in as well. And the beauty, and then in the next 10 years, a dozen other people will do the same. Yeah. And, uh, and like, what a gift that you got to use. You got to drive the car for a while. Yeah. Was it, was it more intimidating uh, to do that than it was to say, write Hell, Hellraiser, which has some of the same issue, some of it. Right. But not as, I think, number one, I wrote about a demon who almost literally no one even, even the people there dealing with the Hellraiser, almost didn't remember that that was a demon mm. from this universe. So there was a way that I went so deep cut right. that it kind of, I had free reign. Like nobody had ever written this this character before. Yeah. Uh, except for it, so it, at the end, not that anyone would care or remember, but at the end of the first Hellraiser movie, there's this homeless looking character who you discover at the end is actually a demon that like always finds the box after it's done all its damage yeah. and flies away. And as far as I knew, he hasn't been in anything else. And so I was like, can I write about that character? Yeah. They were like, uh, sure. Because <laughs> nobody else will, yeah. uh, more than likely. And so, I mean, if I had written Pinhead or even any of the Cenobites, right. I think it would that would have been the same issue. Yeah. Um, but because I was going so deep cut, I was kind of safe. And in a in a way, even my Sabretooth story, like um, at the heart of it was like one of the things that we all agreed at the start was, I was not going to be using any A-listers mm -hmm. except in like a tangential way. Mm -hmm. And so that also allows a great deal more freedom 
for these people to do lots of different things. I mean, as long as Sabretooth is an awful human being, right? Uh, and I can do almost anything with him. Yeah. You know, whereas I think if I was taking on, uh, like if I was, if somehow I was writing the X-Men, that's a very different issue. Sure, sure, sure. Um, and would feel, I would feel so much more fraught about, you know, how you play with those toys. Yeah. Yeah. Versus like saber tooth or yeah, yeah 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 did you did you hear from Clive about about the Hellraiser story at all never never, never no I mean okay. never about that never directly at all yeah. uh, as was his only because he recommended you for the for the gig that that's no, the only reason why I asked yeah. no no believe me I would have uh, it would have brought me no small amount of joy yeah. uh, if I had um, more like the way I heard was. I, I understood he was pleased because then um, he had another book of his called The Great and Secret Show um, that was being put out in like a special edition. And then uh, through somebody, he reached out to me and said, I like what you, uh, would you, he didn't say I like what you did there necessarily. He said, I wonder if you'd be interested in writing an introduction to this. Oh, nice. Right. And so I took that as a sign that I hadn't messed it up yeah. completely. That, you know? that sounds great. That sounds great. Um, uh, I'm told that we have a question. Yes, Ben? Yes? All right. We're going to ask a question. Uh, from Pudrigo. Uh, do you tailor your stories for comics based on your collaborator's artistic style? Well, so far, I've, I've come up with the story before I had a collaborator. Mm -hmm. So, no. But what has happened is as we're going through issue to issue, I start to get a sense of their style. And I'll also sometimes just write to the artist who I'm working with and I'll say, is there anything you would really love to draw mm -hmm. in this world? Anything that I've written here that doesn't sound very interesting to draw, like it's kind of pedestrian. If you can think of something better, please do it. And then I'll adjust the, the dialogue or the uh, captions yeah. to what you did. Yeah. Um, and so in that way, I hope it feels more organic so that the artist doesn't feel like Oh, I'm just following orders. I do want it to very much be an organic sort of thing because in the end, like I'm very proud of the writing. I'm very proud of the prose, but I know like I can read a If, if a comic has great words, but terrible art, I don't know if I can read it, but if mm -hmm. a comic has um, awful words, but amazing art, I'm still buying that comic. Mm -hmm. So I know where the, I have a respect, I have a great deal of respect for what the heart of this medium is. Yeah. You know, uh, yeah. I want that to, I want the person making that work to feel like they got to floor to sort of sh to shine, you know? Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes sense. Um, uh, what's your, what's your physical process in, in writing? Do you, um, are you are you writing it sort of screenplay style script? Are you writing you know just sort of a plot synopsis? Uh, do you do you do your own thumbnails to see how something flows on a page? No, I so it looks much more like a, a screenplay, mm -hmm. um, except that it's you know um, I break it down panel to panel as opposed to page to page. Um, I wish I had even enough skill to draw a draw a square that I could draw something in to imagine it. So it's entirely like I 
I like I'll write out the script. Usually what'll happen is I'll write out the script and then I'll read through it page to page. And in the first draft of the script, the action is either barely there or kind of dull. Right. And can be, you know, um, two people standing together on the on an on an island on the island of Krakoa, uh, yell, yelling at each other. And then in the second draft, what I'm reading through is when I'll be like, "Well, one of these people can fly, and the other one can turn into mist. I should use that." Yeah. In some way, you know, like uh, they should argue in the middle. They should argue in the air, and the mist character should be should float into the flying character's nostrils or something. I don't know. You know, I need to right. use this. Uh, right. So it's usually like two or three drafts of the script before I send it to the editors. Then they usually have at least a few notes about like, could you tighten this up? Could you do this? We were wondering if. This might be more dynamic uh, of a way to deal with this issue here on this page or whatever it might be. Then I'll do that fourth pass, and then that's usually the one that gets sent to the artist. Yeah. Um, and then <clears throat> sometimes, like so, with the saber tooth one, I've been working with an amazing illustrator artist named uh, Leonard Kirk. Um, and what's fun there is he'll sometimes when he sends back the art, he'll say. I saw, like reading it, I saw you had six panels, but I saw how to collapse it into four so that I could make one of them a lot bigger and really get into the detail mm -hmm. and the beauty. Mm -hmm. And so now all you have to do is just adjust the dialogue. And like, that's like a level of expertise that I just, I just love. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. Are are you, were you in touch with Joe uh, at, at all? Only through only through editorial um we were we weren't in direct contact um i think in part like she she was just super busy but also i think to some degree uh um language wise there was a little bit of a um uh, uh it would just seem like it would be easier and maybe translate a little better right um through the editors who've been already working with her for a while yeah um so we had i think like you know uh, a tiny bit of exchange, uh, but mostly it's just come through. Uh, like I send it to Boom, yeah. we do our editorial passes and revisions. They send it to her. Yeah. She does her work. Then she they send her work to me. I look through and say like, could we adjust this? Could we do this? She makes some changes there, and then they send it to the colorer, the yeah. inker, yeah, yeah. and so forth, colorist. Yeah. Yeah, we uh, we try. We were trying to get Joe to to do do this interview as well. Yeah. Get both of you to do it, and yeah. but n n was was not interested. I think, I think, yeah, I think because of the language issue. I, yes, I think. I think that's yeah. right. I think that's yeah. right. Yeah. yeah, it happens. Um, I'm 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 curious, particularly about Eve in this sense that it seems to me that an awful lot of of the success of a book like this comes down to character design, world design, um, things that you can describe in prose, but how they actually get executed makes kind of the critical difference. Sure. For sure. And so we, we um, uh, the preliminary phase was a good bit of, um, of, 
back and forth about a couple of things, like so as far as the world goes, right? So the initial description I had was just like it's a post-apocalyptic, da 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 da. And so Joe sends back her first pass, and it's like a, let's say it's like a diner, like a a, a diner's, you know, the the counter at a diner and the and the, the stools. And everything is sort of covered in like kudzu and and over and growth and all the rest. And um, and then I wrote back. I I was I write back and I say like, well, the 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 sort of the the plague in this one makes people ravenous. So there wouldn't be any plant life. Mm-hmm. In fact, and there wouldn't be any plastic on the uh, stools mm-hmm. um, and even the glass and and some of the wood will have been devoured. And so then she sends back another version of that same thing where everything is stripped except for metal or thick wood. And it all looks much more skeletal and sort of like more like uh, bones that have been bleached in the sun, Yeah, you know? And then I was like, okay, yeah, that's it. That's it. So then it was just basically like, it's going to be either everything is stripped down to nothing or it's water. Right, like that's all we have, and so and then the same with Eve. Um, we went through a few passes for Eve, <clears throat> um, trying to get her hair right, skin tone right, get her features right, um, uh, and that was, I think, thankfully everybody worked together very nicely to like. I would just I supplied pictures and pictures and pictures of like here's what her hair should look like. Here's what her skin should look like. Here's what her features should look like. Yeah. And uh, Joe came back with, with stuff. And then uh, I didn't, and then Joe was the one who came up with her general like costuming, right? Yeah. The the way that she looks like a real, like uh, ready for anything adventurous kid, but not in like high end gear. You know, everything looks kind of stitched together and like she's right. bare, is, keep is almost falling apart. <clears throat> And in that, because I wanted the uh, one of the um, uh, sort of examples I gave her for like the energy of Eve was uh, Pippi Longstocking, mm. and that sense of like this kid who lives on her own, but in fact she's the most formidable kid you mm-hmm. ever met. Uh, mm-hmm. And so that went back and forth a few times, and um, and then when we finally got it all together, it really felt like okay, yeah, like this is her. And then the same, and then Wexler, she came up with Wexler, particularly as a teddy bear, like she got him right away. And then we worked a little bit on him as a, once he became a machine of death. Yeah. Uh, right. Like what should that look like? Um, so that it doesn't look, so it looks hopefully scary and not just kind of goofy. Yeah. You know? Um, and, uh, and so that was the process. It was like a nice back and forth, but once, but we did a lot of that before she even started drawing the first issue. And in that way, um, uh, it made jumping through the the next steps a lot easier. Yeah. And I, I'm assuming that like, you know, you, you can, you can come up with Wexler in your head, but having someone actually draw it for you and go, this is what I think it looks like probably changes the way you approach the character in the script. No. Yes, although you know, I will say the funny thing is the person who did the first sketch of Wetzler was our oldest son. Oh, okay. Because uh, he loves drawing. Um, he loves drawing mm, essentially like 
machines of death, uh-huh. right? So he'll draw a scorpion, but it's got like 19 arms and they all have machine guns on them and things like that. So years ago, he drew a teddy bear that had like six arms. One is a missile, one is a hatchet, one is a this, one is a that. And I held on to that because I just loved the the energy of that. Like that yeah. it would be like, it's very sweet, but it's a murder. It's a killer. Yeah. And so I, I, I did also send that picture to Joe. I mean, you know, I scanned it and sent her the image as well to sort of say like, obviously he didn't look like her, the teddy bear, but just to say like, this is what's underneath it. Like, yeah. Uh, uh, in there and so he gave it first then when she sent it over I was like yeah this is this is obviously this is it and even and a million times better and then um, it allowed me to lean actually even more into the way he is kind of um, kind of just a grumpy old cuss yeah you know uh, and that I got to enjoy leaning into that even more because she had done such a wonderful job of making him in the beginning, I think, seemed adorable. Yeah. Uh, and then it played, I, th- I thought it played nicely. It played even better against that. Yeah. Than yeah, no, that, 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 tonal, that tonal shift that, that comes is one of the things I most enjoyed about, about yeah. the story, actually. You know, um, that, that, you're, that as a reader, we think that the story is going to be one thing, and then, oh, it, it spins and becomes right. something else. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, it certainly was. Uh, um, I felt like I think this will be a, a real twist, um, and then by the end, I hoped, and it wouldn't turn out that it was it wasn't alien, right. you know, like uh, that we were going for. Um, although even that it was like for a minute when I was I was sort of like, oh, and it's just going to be now, like you know, the robot is just have to kill the humans. That's the that's the way you go with this. Right. And then uh, as we were getting to like issue four, issue five, and we would, me and the editors were talking and we said, well, what if I like, I wrote them and I said, what if uh, Wexler had a, had a good reason? And then they were like, absolutely, absolutely, absolutely do that, you know? And so that it could be a second turn, even if it's, uh, when I say good reason, it's not a reason necessarily that people will agree with, but it's but a motivation, it's a, motivation. a logical motiva- a motivation yes. you can understand. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. Even if you don't agree, you understand. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And so that was a lot of fun to sort of do that. And then, uh, you know, I was also, I guess, you know, I wanted a, a post-apocalyptic story with a happy ending. Yeah. I felt like I was kind of in the mood for a happy ending. Right. Um, you know, for something in this world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, believe me, I understand that. Um, uh, what, so, what's what's the genesis of Eve? Where what what came first for you? Uh, was it Eve herself? Was it the world, the situation? The genesis of Eve is actually my wife, um, and uh, that my wife is also a writer. She writes fiction, but she also writes nonfiction. And in the last ten years or so, she's been writing a lot about climate change. Mm. Um, and but she does it from the perspective, not from the uh, up in space. Here's everything that's going wrong around the world. She's doing it very much from the ground level, really on some levels. Basically saying, like, to to our shame, 
maybe we didn't take this all that seriously until we had our first child mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. selfish and understood how selfish it was that we couldn't have thought about this planet before we gave uh, had a child mm-hmm. now that that child is here like what are the really like on the ground effects so like our younger son has asthma um and it's absolutely directly linked to the neighborhood in which he was born and raised uh, because there's uh, um, high rates of asthma for all the kids and uh, from not from a, a, a huge percentage of kids in Washington Heights uh, yeah. in New York and then that led into sort of issues of climate change environmental racism things like that and so she's been writing about this and publishing and stuff in like in the new yorker the new york review of books new york magazine all these uh wonderful places orion magazine other places like that and as her husband and a fellow writer i've been sort of like on her shoulder you know listening to her talk about it right reading the pieces when they come out and all that stuff was percolating in my brain um and I knew like I was never going to be as good a writer or as expert a writer as her on the nonfiction end, but I was learning these things and I was feeling this deep concern. And I thought like, well, the way I can sort of wrestle with it and talk about it is in a story. Uh, and in particular in a comic book. Um, and uh, I would say, so our older child is on some level, the spirit, of Akai, the character in Destroyer. And so Eve is absolutely the spirit of our younger child. Um, and so in a way it was also, so it was like my wife's research and then our younger child who is um, a, just, you know, I mean, it's a cliche, he's the pluckiest kid I ever met. Uh, and I was like, okay, even if I never publish another comic, each of you got one. And each of each of them is about how much I love you and how wonderful I think you are. Yeah. So that's kind of sweet, actually. Thank you. I mean, I hope I really hope they would. I hope they they will find it that way. Yeah. Uh, uh, though your 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 youngest is is also you. You have two boys. You said yes. Yeah, our youngest is uh, trans, and, oh, okay. uh, um, and so. Uh, so he's a boy, uh, uh-huh. uh, but um, and we discussed it, and he said uh, uh, it's okay for Eve to be a girl because I was also um, I also wanted a black boy and a black girl mm-hmm. as uh, in the two comics, mm-hmm. um, and so uh, so we discussed it. He said that's cool. I'm going to write my own comics anyway. I don't need you mm-hmm. to uh, to write about nice. me. Nice. So I was, I was just, so I said the pluckiest kid on yeah. earth. So, um, so yeah, he's, so, so when the time comes, he'll, he'll pop out his own thing. But, uh, so that was why these, these, these were the, the two of them. Yeah. No, I, I love that. I love that. Actually. I really love that a lot. Um, uh, what, what to you is, is the appeal of monsters? Oh, well, number one, they're just so fun, hmm. right? Like, uh, uh, and two, like they can mean, <clears throat> like they just, they get to mean so much more than any literal, exp- you know, uh, an oil spill. I'm tr- I'm thinking back to like um, the old Godzilla movies. Um, and there's one movie, it's a terrible movie. It's Godzilla versus the smog monster. Um, 
But I will say that like, I really wasn't thinking about smog and uh, climate issues in the 80s, except for the smog monster. Mm-hmm. And there's a song at the beginning called Save the Earth. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there's this creature that just ejects these disgusting blobs that kill people and all this other stuff. And as a kid, I think what I thought it was was just like a gross monster, like if you made a monster out of boogers, right? Like it was fun and disgusting. But there was a way that some part of me was also like, oh, that's pollution. Got it. I see. You know, um, but I didn't have to, but no one had to, I didn't have to sit down and be a kid being told, like, watch this movie about, watch Silent Spring or something like that. You know, Uh, a few years later, I read it and uh, could enjoy it and or appreciate it. Um, But I feel like the gift of monsters, it's like they can be, um, they can be the fantastical thing and they can be the symbolic thing simultaneously and then the amazing thing is they can also be more than one symbol yeah you know um and so like you know i love of horror there are so many iconic characters you know i mean jason Voorhees is absolutely just a fun killer Mm -hmm. but jason Voorhees is also potentially um he's also potentially the specter, like the the rage of the ignored child. And he's also, from the first movie, he's also like the sort of the spirit of a mother's undying love, mm-hmm. you know. But mostly he's just a cash cow for uh, some producers, you know. <laughs> sure, sure, sure. He can be sure. all of those things depending on who's playing with it. Yeah. And that's amazing, I think, you know. Um, And then as a secondary note, like this is much more sort of um, overthinking it, but like one of the definitions uh, of of a monster, like if you break it down into like some of its roots in Latin, I guess, is um, that the the word monster means a message from the divine. Mm. And uh, I really like that idea as well as like uh, that monsters are a way that we channel into something much more profound than us uh whatever you want to call it divine fate god whatever it can be any of that but it's just that sense that like something from the world from the cosmos whatever is trying to tell you something Mm -hmm. and it has sent this strange being to make it known to you and so i just so i yeah i i love monsters without reservation. I love that answer. I think that's a great answer, man. Um, uh, this is kind of a weird question. The, the Destroyer um, uh, was published as as Victor Laval's Destroyer. It was, yes. It, it had your name above the title, which I, I thought was an interesting choice given that you weren't really known in the comic circles at yes. all. Yes. Uh, was that a decision uh, made by Boom or made by you or? No. So what happened was uh, there's already a destroyer uh, in right. the Thor comics. There's the destroyer character. Mm. Uh, there was, I think, I, I think destroyers common enough that there might have been other comic books. But that's right. So they came back and they said, uh, we want just to sort of like 
avoid any copyright issues and um, to make it stand out from maybe other things. And I think even Nicole Kidman had a movie out around mm. the time called Destroyer. Mm -hmm. um, they said like, we think you need to change the title. But I was really, for whatever reason, like be inspired by dreams or something like that. I, I felt like Destroyer is the title. And then I said, let me take a page out of my man, John Carpenter's book. Uh, and his movies are all John Carpenter's The Thing, John Carpenter's mm -hmm. Halloween. Maybe not Halloween, but all the later ones. Yeah. And so I said, well, what do you think about Victor Laval's Destroyer? And they were like, it's kind of arrogant, but okay, let's do it. <laughs> you know? and, I said, uh, and I said, I'm okay with that. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm glad you said it, because you know, that's what I was thinking, too. It's <laughs> a, a little arrogant there. It's yeah. a little bit of hubris there. But yeah. you know, like the beauty of it was, um, uh, it, like if, if that so that's why like it's not Victor Laval's Eve it's just Eve because mm -hmm. uh, for whatever reason there wasn't an Eve that would bring up those copyright issues or anything like that and so I didn't continue the yeah the the pattern but in that case I I, I just I, I I to this day I don't know if I could explain why I just felt so sure it had to be called Destroyer yeah. okay and I said okay this is how I do it and it is also true and I was also like. Hey, look, nobody might, this might be read by nobody. I'm at least putting my name on the cover. Right. In some sort of way. But it absolutely, <laughs> I can see how it smacks of like, who's Destroyer? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, you know, for me, as a, for me as, a, as a retailer too, it's always like trying to figure out what do you rack it as? Do you yes. rack it under V or do you rack it under D? Right? Because because those are, you know, because on my invoice, it certainly shows up in the Vs, right? Uh, right. Right, gotcha. but I would think so, you should put it in the D's, right? Because yes, no, we we did end up racking it in yeah. the D's because it because it just seemed it because we didn't want to give in to your arrogance. That's fair, but also I would say like the other thing is like uh, a different like a like a famous uh, comic writer's name at the top would make sense. Then you rack it there because that yeah. person's name might. You know, I could see like who would be, I don't know, Alan Moore's uh, Barbie. Yeah, absolutely, is going under yeah. A. Right? Yeah. Again, I generally would, I generally would say, don't do that to almost any author yes. to put your name above the title. Now, you can put your name physically above the title. Right. Your name is physically <laughs> above the, the word E, yes. but it's not part of the title it's here. Not part of the title, you that's know? right? Um, uh, that well, to know, me is the difference, right? You know, I always loved, uh, this is like a totally different thing, but um, uh, there was a movie that came out, it must be over a decade now, um, called, um, good Lord, how am I, Push, I think it was, no, no, um, it was called, um, give me one second, I'm just, I apologize to, for looking up for a second, because I no, just- No, it's all good. If it helps you make the argument better, that's all good. Ah, yes, that's what it was. Um, so uh, there was a movie 10 years ago called Precious, right? Mm. Uh, that was uh, uh, by the, a writer named Lee Daniels, uh, became a, a big sensation at the time, won an Oscar for, um, uh, for Monique, yeah. I believe. Uh, like amazing and all this stuff. And the, um, but the writer of the book was a poet and fiction writer named Sapphire, a uh, really lovely person. And um, the book had been, I think, a hit, but not 
you know, retire kind of money. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when they optioned the book, she's, they told her, like, we're going to change the name because Push doesn't tell anybody anything, mm-hmm. right? Um, but uh, Precious does, and there's a nice planet because she's not treated in any way like she's Precious, blah, 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 blah. And, um, and Sapphire said, I hear you. But what I want the official title of this book, this movie to be is Precious, a movie based on the book Push by right. Sapphire. And her whole point was like, even a movie that no one sees is going to be seen by a million times more people sure. than even my hit book. Mm-hmm. And uh, and she said, like, uh, just pushing for that as 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 she said, like, you know, the producers or whatever were like, it's going to be called what? And she said, I'm not selling it to you without that. And they weren't paying her a ton of money, I don't think. So it was just sort of like, all right, fine, fine. But she, like, I don't want to say she retired of that because I can't, I don't know her finances, but she sold a lot more books as a result. Sure. This is not the oh, same absolutely. thing, yeah. uh, obviously, because I wasn't whatever. But this is all to say that there's a, a, a like a, a fun, and I think there's a fun and interesting uh, blend of like, crassness and arrogance that goes into the process you know what i mean and i just sure. leaned into it i just leaned into it yeah yeah no it's it's all good i just you know oh, i thought I as long as i was talking to you we may, yeah. as, well, we may as well talk about it for a minute you know um uh in you know in terms of eve uh the 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 first association that anybody's going to have with the name eve i think is is going to be the biblical one um yeah uh did that how did you how did you name eve i guess is my question and and what were your thoughts there well it was in a way it was similar to destroyer like the the name came to me before anything else Mm. and then i spent a while trying to convince myself not to use that name Mm. for exactly that reason because it was sort of like oh my god that could you pick a more on the nose title than eve right like uh, why don't you call it like Eve and the Garden of Eden? Why don't you, you know what I mean? Like just go all the way, kind of thing. Um, but it wouldn't leave me, and it's and there was a part of me that also started to say, okay, so what if it's on the nose? Like, yeah. and sometimes it's like okay if 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 they think of that thing, and then they open the comic and pretty quickly see, well, it's not in any way a literal. Uh, sort of retelling or mm-hmm. there's no obvious, it's not even like an obvious sort of like mm-hmm. uh, Christian allegory, anything mm-hmm. like that, mm-hmm. then it will wash away a little bit of that um, fear. But mm-hmm. there, but you know, you can't uh, like, don't overlook the astounding amount of essentially free advertising mm-hmm. that the name Eve has done in human beings' minds. Sure. You know, and so, so it was sort of like, don't overthink it. You like everything else about this, I think is relatively specific and weird. And you're, and I wasn't sure if it would go over with people, Mm. you know, like uh, the particular type of climate uh, change, the clone stuff, the killer Teddy, AI teddy bear, Mm -hmm. blah, 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 blah. Mm -hmm. I was like, I don't know if any of this other stuff is going to be, people are just going to be like, this is stupid. So let me use one thing that people will recognize. Right. And so that so then I just said, okay, I'm just gonna stick with it. Yeah. 
It's funny because it's all the other stuff that I, that I like the most about the book. Right. Well, you know, Mike, the, 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 that was certainly my hope, but I felt like I want you to open it, you know, and Eve, you know, certainly I know also there'd be some people who'd be like Eve pass, like no question. But I, you know, I, I bandied around some other names, but honestly, they were like, you know, clone six and the bear companion, you know, terrible, right. terrible. Right. 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 So I just went simpler on the nose. Fine. Yeah. 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 No, it, it absolutely worked. It absolutely worked. I, uh, and as I said, I, I, I thought this was just, it was a really smart book. It was a really kind of touching book and, and it, it took turns and it's, I don't know. I, I really, really like this man. I, I, that's, that's what I can say to you. You know, I, I, I think I, you did I, a fantastic I, job on this. I and, really, really appreciate that. You know, and the other thing that I, um, that I, I just sort of want to point out is, um, you know, we, it, this has been selling really well for us, like outside of the club, right? Like people have really reacted to this book and that image very Isn't strongly. It amazing amazing yeah, it, it really is an amazing cover. And, you know, I think that uh, particularly now, I think people are really looking for, you know, diversity and protagonists and situations. And I think you hit it a really good moment for that. Uh, you know that that the book becomes that much more attractive as a result. I think, yeah, I and mean, I think it, you know it's that kind of thing. Like uh, even five years earlier, there's not maybe the same appetite or not maybe the same conversation about that appetite. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so I do feel also very lucky uh, that this is the time. And also, like so, like even Destroyer, there too, there was conversation about like it's a good time for it and all this kind of stuff. Uh, and good to see a protagonist like that. Mm -hmm. But I will say um, one of the things that played a factor in how I wrote Eve was also I thought it had it came to a happy end, but it's a much grimmer book and a much grimmer, like maybe at the very end, there's a flourish of something mm -hmm. like he's at least smiling on the last page. Right. But I also felt like, you know, maybe at the time when that came out, it was it was full of like kind of despair and anguish and anger. So that was the right energy for it. Mm -hmm. But like this time around, it also felt like, um, I want Eve to give the give if a reader gets into it, I want them, I want her to give them something different, which is like, you close, maybe you close that book and you say like, all right, let's keep going. Let's keep fighting. Yeah. Let's try for yeah. this, you know? Uh, and I wonder if that too, like, the kind of kid Eve is the moment that we're in and that it's frankly, like just not a unbelievable downer yeah. of a book, you know, yeah. also helps. Yeah. Um, I, yeah. Like I said before, like I was, I was dying for something hopeful. Yeah. Yeah. Well, especially, especially in like, you know, post-apocalyptic space, you know, yeah. it, it, they, they, they just tend to be dark, 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 dark yes. all of the time. Yes. <laughs> you know, like, let's make it worse and let's pile on. And, you know, yeah. So the fact that it, you know, that it does have some hope and, and some light at the end of it is, is kind of beautiful, you know? Um, yeah. Yeah. No, I, I really, I really, I really, like I said, I really, I really like this. Um, let's, let's start to wrap up. I got, I got two, like, just like I have a, an initial question I always ask. 
Uh, I have two questions I always put at the end. Okay. Um, the, 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 the first one is, is kind of for you is the, what else do you have coming up? Are there things you would like to plug? Uh, you know, you as an author, give me five minutes of, of what's next. Well, um, so I'm, I, I've turned in, Joe is at work on issue one of the next Eve oh, nice. story. So, uh, we're, um, we just had so much fun doing it, and if I and frankly, and people seem to like the story and, and like these folks, uh, I felt like I had more story to tell. Like there was, you know, like you save the world, and then what? Mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm. Uh, and rather than it being a story of, rather than going backwards and saying let's tell the past, I said like, yeah. no, no, it's really like happily ever after. And then the next day they woke up and there was some stuff they had to do. Mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. And, and what did the world look like? So that'll be, excuse me, I think as long as we stay on schedule, like late fall of this year. Nice. Wow. The next, uh, the next Eve story. Uh-huh. Um, so that's that genuinely excites me, man. That I'm, oh, I'm actually that this is this is a scoop, and I love it. I think that's <laughs> fantastic, man. Yeah. Oh, good, yeah. good. I'm glad that you, that that's the the reaction. Yeah. Uh, to that, and so yeah. so that's probably the most uh, fun like um, uh, uh, comic end thing, and um, yeah, and then also and, I, and, and 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 how do you see it? How do you see it for the longer term? I mean, is it? Do you have one more story? Do you think you might have? Five more stories? At least two more. Nice. At least two more. Nice. And I think uh, as a, yeah, I mean, because I like, I just am enjoying the world. We're going to like op- build it out a little bit so that uh, we're going to bring in like, uh, you know, Eve and her clone and the teddy bear. They were on a certain adventure, but there was there were a lot of kids living through some real bad times. Mm-hmm. And you know, um, what are they going to be like? Mm-hmm. You know, just because the air is clean and you can step outside, does that mean everybody's ready mm-hmm. for a saved world? Right. It's the kind of thing I wanted to sort of play with, um, and um, and at least for now, I, I've, we've talked, and there's at least two more arcs of story that I can see nice. wanting to really dive into with her. With all of them, and with a yeah. sort of expanding cast of of this new world, you know, that's fantastic. I love that. You know. Oh, good. I'm glad. I'm really yeah. glad. Yeah. Um, so, so that's a big. And then maybe uh, on the non uh, uh, comic side of things, um, I published a book in 2017, uh, a novel called The Changeling, um, and uh, next. In two weeks, we start filming the show for Apple TV. Oh, nice! Um, yeah, congratulations. So, thanks. So we're doing. Uh, we're in pre-production now. I'm uh-huh. a part of the uh, the process, um, and um, and uh, we've got most of our cast. We've, we're building sets. We're doing all this real cool stuff. Mm-hmm. And then uh, in May, we start filming. Uh, the pilot will film through the summer and I think the hope would be that in the fall maybe or spring of 2023 uh, it'll air on Apple TV nice so, nice that's so great. exciting stuff exciting stuff yeah. I, I hope yeah yeah no that's 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 pretty that's pretty exciting I mean it seems to me that Eve could could very well be a show 
as yes. well. You know, I agree. I agree. Yeah. And uh, I, uh, there's some movement in that direction, but of, like with all these things, until until yeah. it exists, it doesn't exactly. exist. Uh, exactly. And but exactly. I would love that. I would love for that, and I would love for the chance to, for that story to be told in another medium as well. Yeah. You know. Yeah. So well, that's cool, man. Good, good. I'm glad. I'm glad that there's there's more coming. That that is that is great stuff. Um, so, and then the last question, and you know, maybe this this one might really be easy for you to answer. I don't know, or maybe it's hard. Um, uh, this is you know a series of, of videos that we do where we talk to a lot of different people, and so it ends up getting watched by people who want to make comics on their own. Okay. Um, and you know what I often hear from people is. Yeah, I want to do comics. I just I don't know how to start. I don't know how to how to begin to start writing or creating. Uh, so so as the final question, if someone came to you and was like, I, I just I don't know how to start. What would your advice be? And it it can be something physical. It can be something, uh, you know, sort of spiritual or emotional, or I'll, I'll just shut up now and let you kind of, kind of answer that how you want to. Well, uh, I'm like a, in many ways, a very, very practical person. Uh, and so I think that the thing that I would suggest, I believe very much in finding models for the thing you want to do so you can understand how it was done. And so I would say, only example I could think of, of this off the top of my head is uh, Alan Moore. They published a, and I think it was Eddie Campbell, right, who did the art. Uh, they did a From Hell that included his scripts mm -hmm. in the back. Mm -hmm. um, and I found it revelatory, number one, to see how much he wrote in his descriptions, uh, but just to see a script, mm -hmm. you know? And so I would say if, it, if you're talking to comic book writers, um, these days, I wouldn't be, well, maybe I would be semi-surprised. But the internet being what it is, I bet it's possible to find comic book scripts, at least for some classic comics, like the big stuff. Sure. Uh, you know, some, maybe some Grant Morrison runs or some mm -hmm. Alan Moore runs or whoever, you know, is big to to, to that person, to that writer. Um, and to, to study them and to just read two, three, 10, 15 of those scripts and really start to really understand how uh greats in the form did it mm -hmm. um and then the point is not to necessarily do it as well as them right out the gate but just to understand like literally what the format looks like mm -hmm. what kind of work goes into it and then and I, actually i would say this is a secondary thing the best version of this would be if it's possible i don't know if it is like I, t I, t I tell my writing students this sometimes if they have a writer they love and there's a masterpiece of theirs that they love, right? Let's say um, if it's Virginia Woolf and they love uh, To the Lighthouse or Mrs. Dalloway or something like that. And what I'll say to them is, and did you read her first novel, Voyage to the Sea? Uh, because it's nothing like the other books. Uh, it's clearly the work of a talented first timer Mm -hmm. And there's something beautiful and maybe anxiety reducing about seeing that even the greatest writer you love did not write masterpieces out the gate. Yeah. Right. Or occasionally there's the occasional one who does write a masterpiece out the gate. And then I'll say, well, look at their later ones. Were they masterpieces? And almost without fail, no. 
yeah. right? Like they knocked it out early and then it didn't. But to say like, if you can to read scripts and then read scripts if possible of writers you love at different stages to see how they grew, how they matured, but yeah. also where they began. So you would take some pressure off yourself. Yeah. In thinking you have to write from hell first or something. Yeah. Like that. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting because that totally makes me think of uh, the first thing that pops in my head with that example is, is Bill Sienkiewicz. Uh, yeah. How Bill Sienkiewicz, you know, when he was drawing Moon Knight was a Neil Adams clone. I mean, he was literally aping Neil Adams and trying to be Neil Adams and draw like Neil Adams. And then when he did Electra, you know, he's like, okay, now I'm going to be me, yeah. you know, and having, having learned all that foundational stuff yes. by studying a past master, he was then able to, you know, to go beyond that and become this amazing expressionistic uh, right. artist. You know? And to, I, I, you know, I love that example also because another thing that I know I felt when I was a newer writer and that I think a lot of newer writers sometimes feel is I can't copy and uh, I always try to say, like, of course you can copy. You can't plagiarize, but of course you can copy, which is just called being influenced. Yeah. Um, and that if you copy well enough at a certain point, exactly to that point, you learn those fundamentals. And then some part of you says, like, well, I can't. I keep I notice a few things that I wish they would have done differently. And you say, like, oh, that's you beginning to find you. Yeah. And then you and you follow that. So copy the people you love read the people you love and then write stuff that people will love. Yeah. I love it. I love it. I love it. I really want to thank you, Victor, for taking the time to talk to us uh, today, uh, tonight. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I really want to thank you for this book. I, it really, it, it was really a fantastic piece of comicking and uh, I'm so glad there's going to be more. Um, uh, Brian, uh, so thank you for that. So thank you for this tonight. Thank yeah. you for making this book a part of the book club. I'm yeah. really honored by that. Yeah. Uh, and this has been such a fun conversation. I I, I try. <laughs> <laughs> I like talking about comics. What can I say? I like talking about creativity. Talking about creativity thrills me. Uh, you know. Um, so uh, thank you. Uh, you know, um, Ben, will you put me on a one, please? Thank you. Um, so I just wanna I wanna thank. Uh, I've already thanked Victor. I wanna thank. Ben for running the show. I want to thank Jordan for being the producer. I want to thank my staff. I want to thank Zoe, Kat, and Katie uh, for for allowing me to, to, to do this because they run the store and I, I get to fool around and talk to authors, which is really great. I want to thank all of you for watching. Um, I want to thank everybody who's a member of the club because we couldn't do it without you, literally. Um, and, you know, again, I want to I want to thank people like Victor who, who make comics, you know, because we wouldn't have a show uh, if it wasn't for that. Um, uh, in the uh, quick things coming up uh the next couple of shows um our classics club uh we are doing uh the fabulous free freak brothers um we've got uh paul Mervides. um this is actually going to be a live show in a live studio audience and we're even doing it on 420 which i just think is, is right <laughs> uh next month's um uh kids club is squire by two new authors uh uh, Sarah, I'm going to ruin this, Alpha Gia, I think, and Nadia Shamas. And this is a fantastic, uh, nice, thick book for kids. And then next month's um, uh, new adult book will be Nice House on the Lake uh, by James Tinian. Uh, Tinian will be here as well in person, and we will be sitting across from each other and talking with a live studio audience. 
I'm excited by these things. Um, and so I hope that you will join us again. And again, I just, I want to, for the last time, thank you, Victor, uh, for, for you. being a part of this. And, and thank you for spending the time with us tonight. I was a gift, truly. Thank you, Brian. Righteous, my friend. Okay, well, we'll see you all next show uh, or next month. And thanks. Have a wonderful night, everybody. Thank you for watching this episode of the Graphic Novel of the Month Club. If you enjoyed what you were watching, please uh, subscribe and hit that bell up in the top corner. If you enjoyed the books that we're talking about and the creators that we're talking to, every month we pick a brand new book. Uh, the staff votes on it. It's a program that helps keep our store alive, and we'd love to have you as a member. You'll get a new book every month. Just follow that URL at the bottom of the screen.